Welcome to Navigating UK Merger Control, a podcast from DLA Piper. This podcast is aimed at those encountering the UK merger control regime for the first time or becoming reacquainted with it. The UK regime has a number of important differences when compared with those in other major international jurisdictions, including the US and European systems, which listeners may be familiar with. Across this series, we'll be joined by some special guests, including a present and a former regulator, an economist and a lobbyist, who will help us to unpick the UK system, explain what makes it tick and show you what to expect. My name is Sarah Smith and I'm a partner in the firm's competition practice. I am delighted to be hosting this podcast series alongside my colleagues in the DLA Piper competition team. In this episode, the first of the series, we will be providing an overview of the UK merger control regime and we will be joined by our guest, Joel Bamford. Joel was Senior Director of Mergers at the UK Competition and Markets Authority, the CMA, until February 2022. He led the development of the UK merger control regime as it took on increased responsibilities following Brexit. He was instrumental to the outcome in many high-profile and complex merger investigations, particularly in the technology and retail industries. Before his time at the CMA, Joel was at the New Zealand Commerce Commission, where he headed up the advocacy policy and international teams, developing strong links with regulators globally and with active involvement in the International Competition Network. Joel is currently a Fingleton Associates, a leading strategic regulatory advisory firm offering expert advice and board assurance. Fingleton and DLA Piper have worked together on a number of occasions on various complex mergers. Joel will be speaking with Matt Evans, a partner in the competition team in our London office. Sarah, thanks. And Joel, great to have you with us. Let's start off with an introduction to merger control. Joel, what is merger control in the UK and why should our listeners be interested in it? So the the UK merger control system is operated by the Competition and Markets Authority. And essentially, it's a way for UK government to review mergers to ensure that they don't impact competition and result in consumers losing out through higher prices, lower quality or worse service. So the way the system works is that companies can notify the CMA and have their merger reviewed. And then in theory, that can be cleared. It can have remedies attached to it or it can be blocked. The merger regime is voluntary in the UK. And what that means is unlike systems in the US or various European systems, there isn't a mandatory filing regime. So you can decide not to file your merger for CMA review, but the CMA has the power to call in your merger. So voluntary doesn't mean there is no review. It just means that you, as the merging companies, get to make the decision whether to proactively approach the CMA or wait for them to come knocking on your door. It's also a a regime which is extraterritorial. That means that it's not only a regime imposed on UK registered companies, but it can also look at global deals or deals between, for example, two US companies where those companies have customers in the UK or they supply some form of service into the UK. And that extraterritoriality has caused, shall we say, a little disconcerting way of operating for people across the globe. And some examples of that have been mergers which have 
essentially taken place between two companies that don't operate in the UK, but their service in some way interacts with UK consumers. So we've had mergers, for example, in airline distribution systems where neither company supplies directly to a UK company, but their systems impact the way UK passengers purchase their tickets and the way UK airlines distribute their tickets. Right. So that was Sabre Fair Logics, which a lot of people were surprised the CMA had jurisdiction over. Yes. And to be fair, it was also one where the US Department of Justice reviewed the merger. They went to court to block it. They were unsuccessful in that. And then within a matter of days, the UK authority blocked the deal and the deal essentially collapsed at that point. There's also been a few cases where the type of product which is being supplied is is less than clear, shall we say, to the general public. So we've had research type cases where the companies are developing products, often in the pharmaceutical industry. The case which raises a lot of people's kind of interest is Roche buying a company called Spark. And there they were developing products and there was some development within the UK, but there wasn't a product currently being supplied to anybody in the UK. And the way the CMA brought that into its kind of remit, into its jurisdiction, was to look at the development of patents, the R&D staff, and to think about how those were concentrated in the UK and what that could mean in the future for UK consumers. The other way that people often think about kind of supply to consumers generally is, well, I pay for that product. I, I hand over my cold, hard cash and I get the product in my pocket. But that isn't necessarily the only way that people pay for their, you know, their use of a service. If you think of your use of social media, you pay essentially with your data and you're all, you have adverts distributed to you by those providers. And the CMA has looked at those kind of products. It looked at an acquisition by Facebook of uh, the leading GIF supplier. So those small, slightly funny, slightly annoying videos that rotate (laughs) on about five seconds. Um, And it looked at that merger on the basis that while there was no payment by UK consumers, they heavily used GIFs within their messaging and social media. And so it was relevant. And that idea of being kind of relevant to UK consumers is key. The CMA isn't picking up these, you know, US companies or global deals just because it, you know, is on a kind of flight of fancy. It's picking them up because it feels that the services that they're providing are ones that are important to UK consumers and any loss of competition will impact on UK consumers. And that loss of competition is is really the focus for the CMA. And it's what their legal test is. Their legal test for reviewing a deal is to look at whether there is a substantial lessening of competition. That's the language they use. It's very similar to the US and the European Commission in kind of the idea about competition being the impact. So it's not about employment. It's not about shareholder returns. It's not necessarily about data or other things unless they have an impact on competition. Joel, thanks for that overview. Do I take it then that actually, you know, of those people listening to this deal, the people that need to worry about the CMA and think about how they might intervene in a deal are those who are thinking about doing a merger or an acquisition and, I don't know, consumer rights groups, people who might be affected by 
directly affected by the merger? Or are there other people who need to be aware of this too? I think if, you know, if deals are happening in your space, let's say in your market, in the upper area that you operate, then it's important that you understand how the UK is going to look at those deals. So if you're the merging companies, I mean, it's pretty basic that if you're supplying into the UK, if you've got some kind of relationship with UK companies, because it's not just the end consumer, they look at business to business deals as well, then you're going to be, you know, having the CMA on your radar. But if you're their competitor or you're their customer, you should also have the CMA on your radar because it's going to impact your industry and you can engage in the CMA process. The CMA is, you know, it has strong information gathering powers that mean that it can use its kind of legal duty and legal powers to get information from customers and competitors as well as emerging companies. So you're going to want to think about how it is best for you to engage in the CMA as well. And then it's quite an open process. You look at a lot of the processes around the world and there's not very much documentation or kind of steps along the way where that information is made public. But the CMA has a two-phase process and at each phase there are multiple documents published by the CMA. So it's one that you can quite actively engage with if it's going to impact your industry as well. Okay, great. Thank you. And certainly on those information requests and sort of evidence gathering from the CMA, we've seen clients be forced to engage with the CMA, be forced to respond to questionnaires, be forced to provide a lot of documents, even if they don't really have any skin in the game of the merger, and they'd rather not waste time and spend time investing in that. But the CMA certainly got some pretty big powers to compel companies to help their investigations. Yeah, I I think that's fair to say they're pretty strong powers. And I think what the CMA is looking to do is to build up a full picture of how a market or an industry works. And it's been criticised in the past for relying on statements from customers and competitors without evidence to back that up. And so what you've seen in the last few years is a greater use of those evidence gathering powers on customers and competitors, as well as the merging parties. Okay, great. Look, let's take a quick step back. You've had a very senior role at the CMA. You know it inside and out. Lots of people have started to hear about the CMA. The Competition Markets Authority occasionally gets talked about in the national news. But just for our listeners and those who maybe haven't had to have dealings with it yet, other than merger control, what else does the CMA do? And what is its legal standing? I mean, what what is the CMA? Is it government? Is it something else? So the kind of definition is it's a non-ministerial department. So it has a ministry which oversees it, which is BASE, so essentially the business ministry, and you know the BASE Secretary of State, but it is independent. It has independent decision-making. So it doesn't have kind of a control down from politicians or from civil servants within government. What it covers, or its remit, has actually expanded quite significantly over the last three to four years. It's gone as a staff from about 600 to about 900, and that's to cover this broadened remit and, of course, the additional powers related to Brexit. So it covers mergers, as we've already talked about. It covers behavioural competition law. So that's cartels, price fixing, abuse of dominance, anti-competitive restrictions on business competition. And then it also covers consumer law. So things related to 
unfair trading practices. And we saw a lot of that during COVID-19 around refunds or other elements of companies not interacting with the consumer in the right way. And then it's had new functions put on it. So the classic function which the European Commission did was subsidy control. So the CMA has a subsidy advice unit and then also the Office of Internal Markets. So this is about making sure that the same regulations and rules apply in Scotland as they do in Wales, as they do in England, and there's no distortion across the UK. Finally, there's been a growth in the CMA in terms of its kind of area of expertise around digital markets. So it established a digital markets unit and it worked with Ofcom and the Information Commissioner on digital markets. It has also spent quite a lot of time in the last two or three years engaging with government about new legislation. So while government isn't a decision maker within the CMA, it's got an independent board. And then depending on the type of case it's reviewing, it actually has another panel of independent decision makers. So independence within the independence could be the way to put it. It does engage with government around you know, the development of laws, both by advocating that competition should be taken account of in the new regulations or laws that the government is bringing into place, but also actually around the updating of competition and consumer laws. So it's engaged quite a lot on, on that basis as well. Okay, thank you. And we're often asked this question by clients who are wondering, should they notify their deal? Will the CMA really be interested in it? Can you give us a sense of what the CMA's priorities are, I mean, particularly in merger control, but more generally, what grabs its interest? So I think there's a general piece here that the CMA is, is focused on making sure markets work well for consumers. That's their tagline. And actually, that's probably the number one priority is that consumer focus. And particularly at the moment with a you know a cost of living crisis and a greater focus on you know the prices we're paying for everyday items, that's going to even more generate interest and focus of the CMA. I think there's also been a focus, as I said, over the last couple of years on digital markets, and that's globally as well. You've seen the US, you've seen a new digital markets act within the European Commission, and then you've also seen in Australasia various focus on digital markets. And so the CMA has had that focus, whether it be by doing market studies or whether it be by looking at specific digital mergers. So we've talked about Facebook's acquisition of Giphy. It's also looked at Amazon's investment in Deliveroo, Google's purchase of Looker. So different digital acquisitions over the last few years. I think going forward, you know, we have had Brexit, which has meant that deals that were previously reviewed only by the European Commission under what is called the one-stop shop have now come to the UK to be reviewed alongside the European Commission. So there's been some statistics recently about the size of deal that the CMA has looked at, and it's gone from a kind of average of about 500 million to an average of about 5 billion. So you can see that they're picking up these bigger deals and uh, investigating them. But as I said right at the beginning, the UK regime is voluntary. So when you're comparing it to the US or the European Commission, for example, they are looking at hundreds of deals a year. And often the vast majority of those are looked at in a very kind of short, quick and a way that doesn't really impinge upon the deal making process. You know, they have a short form notification in Europe, for example. 
the CMA filters those out by not looking at them at all. So you go from kind of three, four, five hundred deals being looked at by those other agencies to the CMA on average only looking at 50 to 60 deals a year. So the ones it does look at are the ones that it's already kind of reached a threshold of. There may be some concern here to review. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And we're actually going to have a separate podcast with Eleni Gouliou from the CMA's Mergers Intelligence Committee on that topic, because I think what she'll tell us about is it's not so much the CMA doesn't look at them at all, but as you say, Joel, they filter them out. And, and I think the latest stats suggest in the last year they looked at almost 830 deals within their team, but then actually only opened up investigations into uh, 50 or 60 of them. And as you say, they, the ones that are obviously not an issue, they're not even going to contact the parties about. Just picking up the themes of CMA priorities and its non-ministerial department role. At the time of recording this podcast, there's a relatively new government in place. Do you think the CMA's priorities might change with a change of government? Or was it your experience that actually the CMA was generally left to its own devices and didn't get any direction from politicians? So the CMA does get a strategic steer from the department. And I think what the department does and the minister is set the tone, the overall tone, and particularly around kind of risk appetite or areas of concern. What it doesn't do is impact day-to-day decision-making. And that's where that independence comes in. So if we take a merger investigation, for example, in an in-depth investigation at phase two, you have this independent panel of three to five individuals and a CMA staff team. The legislation separates that panel from the CMA board and in that case, the CEOs and executive directors from having any influence over them during the process. I mean, that's one level of separation. And then the board is separate from the department itself. So I think on individual cases, you see quite a strong degree of separation and independence. I think what you can have from you know a change in government or a change in leadership within the same overall government is a tone and a tone of you know, greater deregulation, greater regulation, enforcement versus, you know, a maybe more laissez-faire approach. And I think that takes time to filter in because if you think about the way any organisation works, you may have, you know, a different set of, say, board members or one or two board members change. But if the staff team have come through the organisation over the last kind of 10 to 15 years, you have a way of working and a way of operating, and it takes time to change an overall dynamic within an organisation. And that's very much the case within the CMA. You know, if I look at the staff that I worked with in the mergers team, you know, there's been a lot of progression and promotion within that team. And that team has kind of developed with the development of merger enforcement within the UK. So to suddenly have a kind of 180 shift or turnaround on day one of a new minister seems a slightly far-fetched proposition. But you could have a change over time in, in risk appetite, for example, taking cases that might end up in an appeal at court. But that is a, a gradual yep. process. Got it. Just picking up one of the themes you touched on there, Joel, on this idea of that being politicians, at least in the background, setting maybe 
some tone and direction, but not involved in day to day decision making. And absolutely at phase two, the independence of the panel and the separation from the CMA board. We're often asked by clients, particularly at phase two, but not always, should we get lobbyists involved? Should we get public affairs companies involved? And I think there are some regimes around the world where that's quite commonplace and, and sort of political pressure is brought to or attempts to be brought to bear on, on the decision making process. Thinking of your own experience, obviously not asking you to reveal specific cases and then just more generally, have you seen that happening in cases? And do you think there is a role for, for lobbyists in? I mean, I guess there are different roles for lobbyists, but do you think they, they can be effective in helping move the needle in decision-making? So I think within a merger control regime that is fiercely independent, there is not a role for lobbyists to government to change the decision-making process within the CMA. I have worked on a number of very high-profile deals which have had a lot of political interest and where companies have either spoken directly to politicians or used lobbying firms to talk to politicians. And I can kind of categorically say that that has had no influence over the CMA decision-making process on those deals. The interaction between Bayes and the CMA on individual deals is not an interaction which is based on a kind of master-servant type relationship. It is based on politicians and the ministry wishing to understand how the process operates. And as I said earlier, the CMA's kind of process is quite public in publishing decisions at phase one and intermediate steps at phase two. So it's very easy to pass that information over to the political side. And I think what I have found is that where companies have been frustrated because they don't feel that the CMA is accepting their advocacy or submissions, and they have operated either within a regulated sector or within a sector where on other matters, whether it be employment matters or whether it be health and safety or whether it be other regulations, and they've had ongoing engagement with government over many years, they feel the CMA process should work the same way. They feel like essentially if they get the grown-ups involved, you could say, that the CMA will change its mind. The CMA is an organisation, you know, I've said a number of times now, which is you know, independent, but also it's one where its staff are very diligent in taking the time to assess all the submissions, all the evidence put before them. And they don't just look at the ones from the companies doing the deal. As we've talked about, the information is you know, relatively extensive that they request from those companies' competitors or customers. And so sometimes what you see as a emerging company is not the full picture that the CMA is seeing. And so it's quite challenging to then say, well, the CMA is getting it wrong at this stage if you're not looking at the full picture. I think the other challenge is, and maybe this has been borne out in a few cases, is we've seen over the years a number of companies go to the CMA and argue this deal is the only way forwards. You know, we will fail, we will not get investment, our company will kind of disappear 
And it's a, you know, it's a UK centric company. It's doing great things for UK consumers, but we need to grow the scale of our company to compete globally. And if you don't let us do that, CMA, by merging with our closest competitor, shall we say, it's all going to fail and life is going to end tomorrow. And unfortunately, we've seen that on a couple of occasions where the CMA has blocked or provisionally blocked a deal. And then within two, three, maybe months or even weeks, to be perfectly honest, new investment has come into those companies. And the the doom and gloom, which was there only a few weeks ago, has disappeared. And, you know, things have changed. And so that means that those types of arguments, shall we say, before government are now taken potentially with a bit more of a pinch of salt. Right. That's um, useful messaging for our listeners. Look, you've touched on a few of these points already, but I'm quite interested in just talking through how the UK process differs from other merger control processes around the world. Can you give us sort of three or four key points as you see it? Sure. So I talked right at the beginning about it being a voluntary regime. So if you're in the US or Europe and you're notifying those authorities, the way the process works is you can't complete your deal until you have clearance from those authorities. So it's what they call a suspensory regime. And they have very clear thresholds about your company's turnover or revenue or whatever the kind of financial mechanism as to whether you have to notify or not. So that's the mandatory part of the regime. The CMA, as I said, operates a voluntary regime. So there is a a threshold with respect to turnover in the UK for the target, which means the CMA can look at the deal, or it has this slightly more nebulous, wide-ranging, people have called it a piece of string that nobody knows how long it is, mechanism, which is called share of supply. So if you supply goods and services into the UK, and as a combined entity, which supply 25% of the UK, then that's another way that the CMA can get jurisdiction to look at your deal. But even if it has jurisdiction, you are open to complete the deal, pay your money, get your company before the CMA looks at it. And there's no kind of penalty for doing that in terms of the review. The challenge for the companies is the quid pro quo of having this voluntary regime which allows completion is the CMA has some very strong powers to hold the two companies separate during the review process. So you can pay your money, but you won't necessarily be able to integrate the two companies during the process. Yeah. And it, and it's worse than that, really, isn't it, Joel? Because it's not just you can't integrate, but as the buyer group, you've paid your money, you've acquired this business. You can't have any oversight or insight into what it's doing. If you've started implementing a sort of employee rationalization program and, and removed duplicated roles, you might have to parachute in a management team to run the acquired business and you can't know what they're doing. And you have a third party that comes in and monitors the whole thing. So it's an absolute nightmare. I mean, when you talk about the voluntary system, I always explain to clients, yes, it's voluntary and you, as a matter of law, can complete the deal and pay your money and try and get on with life. But I don't think the CMA see it as voluntary. And if they think 
it was the type of deal that ought to have been notified. They're going to be merciless and they'll basically take the view, for goodness sake, you should have notified this in advance and got a CP. Do you think there's an element of that thinking in the CMA? So I don't think there's an element of thinking if you complete the deal before notifying, that's a kind of a no-go. But I think if you complete the deal and rush to integrate as quickly as possible, that might show that you're kind of trying to preempt the outcome of the CMA review. Right. And your position, as you said, about holding the company separate, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's been cases where during the review, the CMA has made the acquirer parachute money into the target to ensure that it continues to operate its R&D process, for example. So that idea that the companies have to continue to compete head on, even though they're now under a single legal entity, you know, one owns the other, is very much right. And it comes from experience where the CMA or its predecessor, the OFT, used to be not as stringent, didn't have as strong powers. And there were a number of occasions where they would get to the end of the review process and there'd been a fair amount of integration. And so the unscrambling of the egg, shall we say, was pretty challenging to bring it back to a position where competition could continue to flourish. Yep. Thank you. One of the things that clients are often shocked by is when we tell them how long a phase one process would take when you include what we call pre-notification, which is the sort of confidential toing and froing with the CMA, trying to help them understand the market before they go public, and also how much, therefore, that whole thing costs. And particularly if they've not done a UK merger before and they may be used to very nice, quick, efficient filings in Germany or short-form filings with the European Commission. Can you give our listeners a, a sense of what the workload looks like, both for merging parties, but also actually for the CMA in a merger investigation? And, and let's just talk about phase one, because everyone knows phase two, in-depth investigation, wherever you are in the world, that's a big thing. Yeah. Okay. I think I'd make that point first up, which we talked about earlier, which is you know, the CMA doesn't have a short form approach as such. I mean, you, you'll have a Lenny on and she'll talk about the Mergers Intelligence Committee. And there is an approach where you can send a briefing paper. And I'm sure she'll talk about more detail. And while that doesn't give you, you know, legal certainty, it gives you a route to engage in a shorter version, shall we say. So you've already filtered out many of the kind of comparator reviews that you'd have at the EC or the US. So you're really looking at the ones that are potentially problematic or where people are filing for legal certainty. So what does that mean? So you're going to the CMA, you've got a phase one investigation, you're drafting your merger notice, you're going to submit your merger notice. And then what the CMA is doing in that pre-notification period is using that period to kind of refine the information it's getting from the merging companies. So you'll have a series of information requests come back You'll submit your notice. They'll send you questions, you know, where they'll try to draw out more information and more understanding of the businesses and the way they operate in the market. And, you know, you could have three, four, even, you know, and the really big deals, kind of eight or nine rounds of that request for information, much actually in the same way that the European Commission does on its big deals as well. I mean, we've seen European Commission pre-notification last for a year in some deals. But I think on average, you're looking at kind of four or five maybe of those requests for information and that pre-notification period taking about three months. Now, once 
you go on the clock, as it's called. So once, you know, they say that, yes, the merger notice is finished, we've got no more requests for information during that. The CMA has a legally binding 40 working day timetable. Um, and it has to make a decision by the end of that, unless it asks for information and that information isn't forthcoming in a timely fashion. And then it can stop the clock and extend that. But you're really looking at, you know, a two month window after the phase one has started. And what the CMA is doing there is primarily gathering information from other market participants. It may have done some of that in pre-notification, depending on the type of deal and the size of the deal. But generally, it does that during the kind of on-the-clock period. And that's sending questionnaires out to competitors or customers. So if you are in the industry and you see an investigation is you know notified and it's it's up on the CMA website, you know, that's the kind of time that you might expect to get a questionnaire from the CMA to you as a customer or a competitor. And then during that two-month period, around kind of day 15 out of 40, the CMA has a an internal meeting which looks at whether it thinks that this has potential competition concerns or whether it thinks actually this is likely to not raise concerns. And at that stage, the CMA will, will draft a, a letter of issues that it will send to the merging companies setting out the concerns that are still kind of live. And those companies will have the opportunity to come in, you know, to bring the business people, to represent why they think the deal doesn't raise any concerns and to put that directly before the decision maker in that phase one process. Yep. It's quite a tight time scale. You know, the different steps along the process, I think, can certainly feel pretty challenging from an external point of view. If you're the merging companies, you get this letter of issues, you've got to go in for a meeting a couple of days later, you've got to put in a written response. It feels very quick and, and pretty time consuming and a lot of executive time during that process. Yeah, no, I'd agree. It's an intense period. I mean, clients, I think, quite like it because they get to meet these faceless bureaucrats as far as they're concerned who've suddenly decided that their brilliant deal is, is a problem. So you get to see the whites of their eyes and you, you, you get to meet them and put your case. And then, of course, there's an unnerving period for the parties where they actually don't know which way the CMA is going to go and you've just got to sit tight and wait for the decision. Let's just wrap up with one one final question which is a question that everyone was thinking about before Brexit happened and before the transitional arrangements between the EU and the UK ended. But we're now, you know, a year or so in. What, from your perspective, what has the impact of Brexit been on merger control in the UK? So I think the key impact has been that the UK is now reviewing some of these really big global deals alongside the European Commission and the US agencies in particular, you know, along with Japan and Australia and so on. Whereas previously it would have been inputting into the investigation from the European Commission. And I think what that has led to for the companies involved is having to take account of the CMA as a strong independent enforcer and ensure that it is directly engaging with the CMA and not seeing it as a kind of a backseat driver or a, another, a third wheel, shall we say. And I think there's been a few places where companies have engaged with the European Commission 
and potentially thought that the UK would just follow on and take those cases in the same way that the European Commission has. And while broadly the legal test is the same and the evidence gathering is the same in, in many ways, I think there are some nuanced differences which have led to what you might call some unexpected outcomes. So I think one which has raised quite a, a bit of concern or at least quite a bit of kind of chatter, shall we say, is a big cranes merger. So it was two companies that supply cranes to ports and other areas and the European companies, but they supply globally. So the deal was looked at in the US, it was looked at in Australia. So th this was Cargo Tech and Connor Cranes, who I think are both Finnish companies as it happens. There you go. But I think you found that, you know, there were competition concerns raised by many agencies, but there was a, a divestment business put forward, so a remedy put forward to the European Commission, and the Commission accepted that. The same remedy was put to other agencies around the world. And, you know, both the UK and the DOJ said this remedy doesn't meet the requirements that we have for competition going forwards. You're essentially yeah. taking assets from two different companies, putting them together and hoping what in the words of the CMA, at least in public speeches, is a new Frankenstein will compete in the same way that the businesses did before. And I think what you find is when you look at the way the UK particularly interacts with customers and competitors, whether it's through the kind of substantive competition assessment or whether it's through the remedies process, it does a slightly narrower but deeper dive into the information. So it not only sends out pretty detailed questionnaires, but it also follows those, those up with you know, in person or you know, over a Zoom call hearings where you have a back and forth with the executives from those different companies and it teases out more information. And that may be different to potentially in Europe where you get a more paper-based approach to that and you potentially yeah. get a kind of a wider, you know, you've got many more countries to talk to or companies and customers within different countries. So you, you potentially get a wider but shallower review of that type of information. And I think sometimes that means the CMA delves a bit deeper and can find different concerns. I think also you've seen, and this is quite relevant for tech companies in particular, where you might not find a deal is between two competitors in the same market, but is in the supply chain instead. So what they would call a vertical deal. And historically, those have been dealt with by having a remedy that is around some kind of behavioural commitment. And we've seen the European Commission accept those. It accepted them in Google's acquisition of Fitbit, in Facebook's acquisition of customer. And they were about data sharing principles, the interaction with other customers or competitors at different levels of the supply chain. But what the CMA has said, and it said this on numerous occasions now, is it doesn't like those types of remedies. It doesn't like behavioural remedies because it feels that they're very difficult to actually construct in a way that is systematic and comprehensive. They're very difficult to monitor because you don't really know what's going on and it's quite difficult to get the information. And they're very difficult to enforce because when is a breach actually a breach and when is it just a subtle change? And so you've seen some deals 
where companies may have been expecting to come before the CMA and put forward behavioural remedy. One which comes to mind is the large computer parts deal where NVIDIA were looking to purchase ARM. It was a vertical deal. It was about ARM supply to other chip manufacturers, essentially of their IP. And NVIDIA had quite a public process around that they were going to make it free and continue to operate in the same way. But you saw through the way the CMA constructed its review that it had a high degree of scepticism for that continued openness. And I mean, that didn't go through to the end, it collapsed. But I think that was a a demonstration of the CMA's general thinking about this kind of behavioural remedy. Joel, that's a a great note to end on, I think, and a good takeaway that Brexit is giving the CMA jurisdiction over some really big global deals. And if there is a divergence with some other jurisdictions, it seems to be in vertical deals. They're very sceptical about behavioural remedies. And I know at the time recording, there's at least one big global deal that, that may be tested. Joel, thank you. That was a fantastic overview and introduction to our series. I really appreciate the insights and the background that you bring as having been Senior Director of Mergers. So thank you very much and I hope our listeners enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Joel and Matt, and thanks to you for listening. We hope that you have enjoyed this first episode of DLA Piper's series, Navigating UK Merger Control. Look out for episode two, where we'll be joined by Eleni Gouliou, a director at the CMA. Eleni will be discussing two aspects of the UK system that we've touched on in today's podcast and not found elsewhere in Europe, so-called hold separate orders and the briefing paper merger intelligence function. 